If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. We just thought we'd like to let you know that you're listening to a multi-award winning podcast. At the end of June, we picked up the PPA Podcast of the Year Award 2020. And earlier this year, we won Best Specialist Podcast in the Publisher Podcast Awards. So thanks for your support. And we hope that you'll continue listening to History Extra. We have big plans for new podcasts ahead. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our content director, Dave Musgrove, puts the questions about the Scottish Wars of Independence to Dr Ian McInnes of the University of the Highlands and Islands. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. And if this has sparked your interest about Scottish history, we've got a load more material for you to explore on our website. Just go to historyextra.com and search for Scotland. Today, we are talking about the Scottish Wars of Independence in our Everything You Want to Know podcast series. Our expert today, who's going to be answering your questions, is Dr. Ian McInnes, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of the Highlands and Islands. He's written and researched widely on the subject, and his publications include Scotland's Second War of Independence, 1332-1357, which is published by Boydell Press in 2016. Uh, So the format for for this conversation, uh, which will be uh, um, familiar to you if you've listened to our Everything You Want to Know series before, is that we have asked you, our listeners and readers, to send us questions that you want answered on the subject, and we've supplemented that with a trawl of the most popular internet search engine queries as well. So hopefully we're covering all the bases. So Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, So we're going to charge into these questions. We've got a a whole bunch of them, uh, some of them which uh, relate to popular uh, presentations and perceptions of the wars. So, um, so uh, I'm sure our listeners will be aware of uh, Braveheart, the film which uh, has uh, probably done uh, done uh, more than most other things recently to to give a a, a a a sense of the wars of independence and not necessarily an accurate one. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, before so the first question, uh, the, the 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 most obvious internet search question is. A uh, quick one, hopefully. How many Scottish wars of independence were there and what are the dates? 
Um, so I think a good question to start, uh, although I suppose also worth uh, reminding everyone that, uh, that these titles are, are, are things given to these periods of history by historians in the modern the modern day. Um, so that I think you could see this as all one long war, <clears throat> or indeed you could divide them up into even more uh, fragmentary blocks. But um, I think that the well-understood first war ran from 1296 to 1328, uh, and what has come to be known as the second war ran from 1332 to 1357. Um, but the argument has also been made, for example, that the first phase of the first war, so from 1296 to about 1305, was a distinct conflict in and of itself and, and was very different from what came next. Equally, Anglo-Scottish warfare continues again from the 1370s to the early 1400s and then sporadically throughout the 15th century. And none of these are, are titled Wars of Independence. Um, but this is arguably because Scotland's independence was not really as directly challenged in, in the later period as it was in the 14th century. Okay, good. Right, so we've got the, the, the nomenclature out the way. Um, so uh, I think we need to just look a little bit uh, back in time. What were relations like between England and Scotland before the, uh, the, these wars started, before 1296? And, and, and specifically, was there a formal border um, in operation? Yes, yeah, so I think relations between the two weren't perfect, but they weren't necessarily bad. Uh, I think that the border is an interesting um, thing because it's, it's largely what causes friction between Scotland and England over the preceding centuries. Um, and it is that, it's that debate and indeed that antagonism over where the border should, should lie, which, which drives forward some of the, the military action that, that happens. Um, so the Scots, for example, claimed ownership of Cumberland and Northumberland, uh, and it wasn't until the 13th century they, they finally gave up on those claims in the Treaty of York. Um, as a result of, of this kind of ongoing uh, uh, conflict, the, the Scots quite often involved themselves in civil war in England uh, when it suited them to do so, and you see the Scots taking advantage of, uh, of, of, of uh, uprisings in England to, to cause trouble and to, to try and... Uh, take over these these territories in northern England. But from 1237 onwards, I think the border was largely decided. And the Scots and the English have a somewhat better relationship. Uh, but there was disquiet over uh, various English kings' claims to overlordship of Scotland, that they were over kings of the kingdom to the north. And that may go back as far as Malcolm III's uh, surrender to William the Conqueror in 1072. But it definitely goes back at least as far as 1174 and the Treaty of Falaise, uh, in which William the Lion uh, of Scotland uh, recognised English overlordship uh, after his capture in a skirmish. However, this treaty was effectively overturned in 1189 uh, by Richard I, uh, who renounced the Treaty of Falaise uh, in return for Scottish funding of his crusade expedition. Um, but uh, English kings in the 13th century kept returning to that issue uh, of overlordship as a means of exerting pressure on Scotland. Um, and, and and to keep the issue a, a live one. I think these arguments all come to a head, in particular following the death of Alexander III. Okay, good. Uh, now, the next question uh, is from one of our listeners, and you've sort of answered it in a way uh, in the previous answer, but there's there may be a bit more to say. So this is from Angie Cake on Instagram, who asks, how did Scotland lose its independence in the first place? Which uh, rather presupposes um, that that is the case, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you talked about sort of English aspirations to overlordship at the time, but in 1296, we're talking about two independent separate countries, kingdoms? Um, not, not, not mostly, yes. And I suppose, I mean, I, I've got into trouble on Twitter before for for uh, for the use of the term the, the wars of independence that idea that, that, that Scotland was an independent kingdom before 1296 and had been for time immemorial um, I suppose the the, the the suggestion then is that Scotland to an extent loses its independence uh, and then has to win it back and I think that that ultimately comes down to the death of Alexander III and his only living descendant, Princess Margaret, and the fact that there is then nobody uh, to rule Scotland, um, and the guardians of Scotland who are effectively running the kingdom um, without a king uh, look to help from Edward I of England to help choose who the next king should be, because Scotland's on the verge of, of civil war between the various uh, contestants uh, for, the, for the kingship. But Edward sees an opportunity here uh, and demands of the contestants that they recognise him as overlord as part of the process. And, and they basically have no choice 
other than to do so. So when Edward finally decides decides that, that uh, John Balliol should become uh, King John of Scotland, um, John has to recognise Edward's overlordship. And that has a very real um, consequence. Um, it, it, it leads to John's kingship being undermined from the very beginning. Uh, and in particular, legal cases for which John should have been the ultimate authority could be appealed to Edward as overlord. And this really undermined uh, John's position as king. Edward I also demands military service from the Scots for his own ongoing wars with the French. Uh, and ultimately, I think this was a step too far for the, for the Scottish nobility, uh, who refused. Um, and I think at this point, the, the course for war was well on its way. So I think I, I would argue that in that period from, from 1292 to 1296, Scotland's independence was at least being eroded away um, uh, whether it's it's completely lost is dependent on whether you consider that Scotland was conquered uh, by Edward in 1296 or not. Okay, uh, and you've um, you've sort of answered the next question here, which is a, a popular search engine one, which what what caused the Scottish Wars of Independence? At least you've sketched out the sort of the immediate um, um, uh, um, antecedents of it. Is is there any sort of wider uh, aspects there that that we should be aware of? Yeah, so I mean, I think that there are obviously long-term and contributory factors and short-term ones as well. So the death of Alexander III obviously is one of those things that kicks off a chain reaction. So the death of the king and indeed all his offspring means that Scotland is in a terrible position of having no obvious successor. So there are then a series of events that lead up to the Scots turning to Edward I of England for help. Uh, and he starts off a process known as the Great Cause, uh, where there are complex legal discussions over who the next uh, Scottish king should be. Uh, but ultimately, I think all of this kind of leads into to, to the, the to the commencement of war. Uh, ultimately, as well, uh, the, the 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 more short term causes are that the, the Scots basically have enough of English meddling in Scottish affairs, and in 1295 they effectively put aside their king and act collectively for the good of the realm and they make a treaty with the French uh, and the French were uh, enemies uh, of England and in Edwards, the first size, uh, this was a, a treasonable act by his own subjects. I think the Scots knew this when they made, the, made the, the agreement in the first place but Edward then starts to gather an army to invade Scotland in 1296 uh, and, and actually it's the Scots who take the first action. The Scots actually raid into England and, and try and capture Carlisle uh, it was it was largely unsuccessful, uh, but what it did do was hand Edward the First a propaganda victory uh, and gave him yet further cause to invade Scotland. Uh, and he then went on to defeat his opponents in pretty short order. Right. So we've uh, we've got to the start of the wars, and we've uh, we've got a sense about why they might have happened. So could you um, super quickly sketch out the main events of of this first period of warfare? So uh, Edward uh, the first invades Scotland in 1296. There's the Battle of Dunbar, at which the Scots are de- uh, defeated, uh, and then a pretty leisurely campaign by Edward to to pacify Scotland. King John surrenders, uh, and Edward uh, goes home again at the end of the campaign season, pretty sure that everything is is done, that he's dealt with Scotland, and that's it. Of course, it's not quite that straightforward. Uh, the Scots rebel in, in 1297. There are a series of rebellions across Scotland. Uh, and a Scottish military victory at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, uh, where you, we, we start to see the, the, the rise of someone like uh, William Wallace, uh, as well as Andrew Murray. Um, Edward then returns to Scotland the next year and defeats the Scots uh, at Falkirk. Uh, Wallace's defeat means that he's then uh, sent off essentially into exile. Uh, and what you have over the next several years uh, is something more of a war of attrition between the English and the Scots, the Scots rebelling uh, and the English trying to put down that 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 rebellion but it, the it, it's a war that the scots effectively can't win the english have more resource more money uh, and and in such a war of attrition the english are all, always going to win so so pretty much all of scotland has submitted to edward by 1304 uh, at which point the war looks to have ended uh, but then of course rebellion starts again uh, <laughs> led by robert bruce um the son uh, of one of the previous competitors for the throne, the son and grandson, sorry, uh, of one of the, the previous competitors for the throne. 
uh, leads his own rebellion, essentially a self-interested one to try and make himself king. Uh, it's disastrous at its outset, but he comes back again in 1307 uh, and leads a far more successful series of campaigns. He's helped by the fact that Edward I of England dies uh, and his son Edward II is less interested in events in Scotland. He's also helped by the fact that he's able to focus on his Scottish enemies and to pick them off one at a time. Uh, but he uses the next several years to to concentrate on building uh, his kingship and, and making it a reality. And to an extent, that's that's reinforced by his success at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. Bannockburn isn't an end point at all. It, 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 in fact, I suppose it's argued that the, the impact of the battle is relatively little. Um, but over the next years, uh, the Scots increasingly go on the offensive. Uh, they launch a series of raids and campaigns in, into Northern England uh, and essentially blackmail most of Northern England uh, to leave them alone. They launch uh, a seaborne invasion of Ireland uh, and campaign for the best part of three years uh, there to try and make yet more trouble uh, for the English. And in England, there's ongoing disquiet as well. Edward II's reign is not particularly popular. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's civil conflict within, it, within England as well. And so this rumbles on for the next kind of decade uh, until both sides are effectively uh, running out of, uh, of, of effort. Uh, and peace is, is eventually agreed uh, in 1328 to end that, that first phase of the conflict. Excellent. You've, you've done that very well indeed. <laughs> I suspect maybe you've sketched that out before. That was uh, that was that was very <laughs> once or twice, <laughs> very concise. Thank you. Um, you mentioned uh, Robert uh, Robert Bruce. There. I think I saw you on Twitter talking about this um, yesterday or the other the other day about whether it's Robert the Bruce or or Robert <laughs> Bruce. What's what's what is the score there? How should we address this man? I mean, ultimately, it should be. I mean, we should actually use his proper term. It's Robert the First. Um, uh, once he once he be, once he becomes king anyway, um, but no, it, it is Robert Bruce. Uh, the, the the insertion of the the uh, I think is it, it is more of a kind of old fashioned uh, terminology, um, and uh, yeah, it, it just it comes across as being a bit more kind of popular in in, in the way it sounds. So no, I think I think Robert the first uh, ideally, but yes, Robert Bruce otherwise. Okay, good, right. Uh, and talking of this man that leads on to our next question, which is uh, from Neil Robinson on Twitter, who asks how much truth is there in the story that uh, or he says Robert the Bruce but hey um, uh, that's that's his wording uh, that Robert the Bruce betrayed William Wallace so yes this is this is one of the ones that comes up in in Braveheart although in defense of the film it's actually based on uh, what is depicted in a 15th century work uh, called Blind Harry's Wallace and this is the kind of famous tale of the life of William Wallace written in the 15th century uh, on which Braveheart is partially based. Uh, I think the, the simple answer is no um, and that what is depicted which is that Bruce fights at Falkirk for the English and helps defeat Wallace uh, at that battle uh, is not likely to be the case. Um, however what it does emphasise is that Bruce is at various times in English service uh, and did surrender to the English more than once. Indeed, he was in charge of the defence of Carlisle Castle when the Scots invaded in 1296 for the English. Um, and he does surrender. He rebels at various times, but he surrenders as well. Um, and I think that's it, it, it's the example that, that shows that most Scottish nobles were in a very similar position. They were desperate to protect what they had in terms of lands and titles uh, and desperate to preserve them for themselves and for their successors. Uh, and something like the Wars of Independence made this very difficult. Um, so, so no, it, it, Bruce doesn't betray Wallace in the way that's depicted in the film, certainly. Um, but depending on how you look at it, he, he certainly does... Um, work with, fight with uh, the English at times. So I guess it, pragmatism is the order of the day for, for a lot of these Scottish nobles, really. Very much so, yes. It, it, it is a very difficult position to be in. Um, and the Edwardian conquest of Scotland, for example, Edward puts in a large number of English garrisons in southern Scotland, but largely leaves northern Scotland to be controlled by loyal Scots. Uh, and the extent to which they're loyal to Edward at any given moment is is problematic. Um, but but during those periods of rebellion, you do see Scots fighting against each other, some for the English and some against. And it is absolutely it's a, it's a pragmatic choice in terms of what what have I got to lose and how much dare I risk losing. 
Okay. Uh, we've got another sort of Braveheart orientated question here from Mark James on Facebook, um, which I, I wonder if you might give short shrift to, but we'll see. Was was William Wallace the father of Edward III? <laughs> it's, it's one of my favourite bits, uh, the, the suggestion that it is. No, I, I, absolutely not. Um, Isabella France, who's depicted in the film, was only around two years old when Wallace's rebellion actually began, and she didn't actually arrive in England until 1307, which is two years after Wallace's execution. Um, so, so no, this is this is very much dramatic license in Braveheart, um, perhaps to provide a love interest for Wallace uh, after he lost his, his previous wife uh, with her murder in the film's first act, and perhaps a, an attempt to humanise him uh, in between all the killing that he does. Okay, uh, so sorry, uh, Mark, if, if you're hoping for a for a different answer to that. Um, right, okay, you've you've mentioned earlier about the uh, the treaty with France. So we've got a question here from Adam Brown on Twitter: How long did the old alliance, the the uh, Scottish treaty with France, last after 1295? If France and England signed treaties in 1299 and 1303, so I guess you're going to have to just talk a little bit about these various treaties that were were signed in order to help uh, help us answer that. That question. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the Franco-Scottish alliance made in 1295 does very little practically to aid the Scots, um, and indeed it was only potentially useful for the French up until the point that, that they themselves made peace with England. Uh, and they did, they did so in such a way as to allow the English to then fully turn their attentions on Scotland, so, so really not, not much help for the Scots at all in the short term. However, in later years the French did look uh, to aid the Scots I think this is because with the King of England still possessing territories in France, antagonism between the two kingdoms was an ongoing issue and war breaks out between England and France at various points. So the Scots were of potential future value. Uh, I think the French were also useful for the Scots diplomatically uh, and they do aid the Scots at times in ensuring that they are able to get a hearing, for example, at the papacy uh, when the English are trying quite uh, successfully to, to deny the Scots access. I think the alliance really takes off, however, later uh, and during the, the Second War of Independence as it overlapped with the commencement of the Hundred Years' War between England and France. Scotland becomes, in effect, an additional theatre in this, this pan-European conflict uh, and as a result of the, the re-signing of an alliance in 1326 with the Treaty of Corbeil. Um And again, the Scots don't always benefit. that Some French troops did reach Scotland in the 1330s, uh, in the 1350s, in the 1380s, uh, although they weren't always of greatest use. And indeed, the Scots and the French don't often get on at close quarters. The French knights tend to think of Scotland as being rather poor uh, and not worth their effort. Um, But diplomatically, the alliance, I think, was key. Uh, The French, during the Hundred Years' War, refused to make any truces or treaties with England that did not include Scotland. So Scotland was never faced with a situation that had occurred during the First War where the English could make peace with France and then turn their whole focus on Scotland. And in turn, the English were left facing a two-front war, at least uh, for long periods of time. And perhaps the most active period of Franco-Scottish cooperation was in the 15th century, uh, when around 10,000 Scots uh, travelled to France to fight for the French in their hour of of perhaps greatest need uh, after the defeat at the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, the Scots helped the French, the French win their first victory since Agincourt at Beaugé in 1421, uh, but were also involved in defeat at Cravant in 1423 and were largely wiped out at Vernoy uh, a year later. Uh, but the Scots still continued to fight in France throughout the war, just in smaller numbers. Uh, and even arguably after the Reformation, links between France and Scotland remained an important aspect for both countries, even if they lost their kind of military flavour. Mm. I was, yeah, I was reading about that Scottish force in France. That's fascinating. I wasn't uh, wasn't too aware of that. Um, uh, that's no doubt something we should we should cover in the magazine at some point. That's a that's a very interesting story. And um, we should probably do uh, an everything you want to know podcast on the Hundred Years War as well because that's oh yes, would absolutely be, uh, would be a good one to talk about. Um, right, you mentioned uh, the Guardians earlier on in one of your answers, and that leads us into the next question, which is from Howard Cuthbert on email, who says, "Who were the Guardians of Scotland, and why were there so many of them?" So uh, guardians were first used following the death of Alexander III uh, and the the succession crisis that caused. And they were meant to be representative of the kingdom as a whole, although obviously, actually, they were representative of the people who mattered. Uh, So there were six of them in total. There were two bishops, there were two lords, and two earls uh, representing the the higher uh, elements of, of the nobility. But over the years that followed, who made up the guardians uh, of the realm changed due to circumstance. 
Um, so at times, guardianship was taken on by those who were successful in war. Uh, so Andrew Murray and William Wallace uh, become guardians in 1297 uh, because of their successes in rebellion and then at Stirling Bridge. And that ends pretty quickly when Murray dies uh, and Wallace is defeated at Falkirk a year later. At other times, who who is guardian is reflect uh, reflects the basic political situation in Scotland, uh, such as when the Commons dominated proceedings following Robert Bruce's surrender to the English. Sometimes there was only one guardian, uh, and again, that, that reflects political realities. I think that the use of guardians was to provide some leadership uh, for the kingdom and to represent the crown while there remained no king. In this way, the mechanisms of government could still function, um, but it was not without problems. So Bruce and Common, uh, for example, were guardians at the same time, but they failed to agree most of the time. Uh, and indeed, Common and Bishop Lamberton, who is a, another uh, guardian uh, slightly later, quarrelled openly uh, at a parliament, parliament meeting in 1300. Um, but I think in, in this medieval society, there had to be something. The kingdom was dependent on that centralised authority that the crown provided. Uh, and without there actually being a king in place, the guardians had to deputise to, to, just to keep things going. Okay, brilliant. Uh, and again, you, you've also um, uh, mentioned this in one of your earlier answers, um, but uh, it needs a bit more explanation. So it's uh, a question from Howard Cuthbert again. Uh, why did the Scots invade Ireland in 1315? Seems like a an unusual thing to have done? Yes, I, I think the, the, the Bruce invasion of Ireland I think is one of the most fascinating parts of the period, to be honest. It, it seems like something you wouldn't necessarily expect. And I think historians have discussed a lot why the Scots do it. So the, the, there's a couple of possibilities without there necessarily being a, a hard and fast answer. So firstly, there's, there's the suggestion that Robert Bruce wanted to give his brother and heir Edward something to keep him busy, uh, to keep him occupied, to keep him happy, um, because he may have been something of a problem figure. And so the, the opportunity to, to make him High King of Ireland, I think, is one that, that is useful for the Scots politically. Secondly, there's the chance to open up a new front in the war with England. I think that probably made strategic sense. It had the possibility of diverting English troops elsewhere and, and thus away from Scotland. Um, and, and Irish troops were actually part and parcel of English armies uh, which invaded Scotland during this period. Perhaps more importantly, Ireland also acts as a as a a source of supply for English armies. So supplies are, are sent by sea uh, from Ireland over to the west coast of Scotland, usually um, disembarking at, at air. Uh, and again, it's it's to strike at the heart of that English ability to campaign in Scotland repeatedly um, that, that perhaps uh, is a reason behind the Irish campaign. There is, thirdly, the, the suggestion the Scots were looking to foment rebellion amongst the Celtic peoples of the British Isles against England. Uh, I think that, that appears to have been in part what Edward Bruce sought to do in Ireland, although not without, uh, without much success. Uh, but Robert Bruce may have been in contact with both Irish and Welsh leaders in an attempt to galvanise efforts against the English. Of course, this may also have been part of a propaganda effort to justify the campaigns, which were ultimately violent affairs, which committed mass destruction during a period of severe famine. So we do need to treat appeals to Celtic Brotherhood uh, rather carefully. Uh, but lastly, I think that the Scots were also uh, invited. Um, the O'Neill family was looking for support in its own efforts to develop further its power in Ireland. They had links, uh, familial links with the Bruces, and so saw the potential benefit of such an arrangement. The O'Neills themselves may not have always been particularly staunch Scottish allies, um, and the Scots were beset throughout the Irish campaigns by the internecine problems of Irish politics. So ultimately, I don't think any of these aims were necessarily achieved, uh, although for a while there was something verging on panic in the English government as to what to do about the Scots in Ireland and indeed whether the Gaelic-Irish would join them. Okay, uh, so that complicates the picture quite a lot, but we've got the French angle, we've got the Irish angle. Um, we haven't didn't sadly have a question about the Welsh angle, which you um, referenced there, but... Um, uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll cover that as as we progress. Right, next question. Uh, this is a a big one on uh, search engines. Uh, why did the Scots win at Bannockburn? Um, I think due to a combination of factors. Really, uh, I think Robert the First's leadership, as well as that of his commanders, was based on on several years of experience of successful campaigning against the English, of 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 honing a style of fighting that worked for them. And I think they learn lessons from defeat uh, as well as from victory. I don't think there's any doubt that Bruce, for example, learns lessons from his defeat at Methven, 
1306, uh, as well as from his victory at Loudon Hill in 1307. Um, and I think the Scots develop um, that style of fighting that, that works best for them. And, and what they're able to do at Bannockburn is put that to best use. Uh, they're able to choose the battlefield, which is, I, I think, an essential point. Uh, and they're given the time and the capacity to prepare the field to best suit their style of warfare and to deny, deny the English the space to manoeuvre their, their much larger army. Uh, the Scots were able to bottle up the English in such a way that the cavalry uh, was really unable to have any sort of impact. Uh, and indeed the English archery arm, which which could also be uh, very dangerous uh, and had been so at the Battle of Falkirk, uh, was left exposed uh, and unsupported. Uh, and Scottish counterattacks uh, led by their own cavalry uh, meant that the, the archers were chased from the battlefield. So the, this then results in the battle just being a, a slog between those those uh, warriors fighting on foot. Uh, and the Scottish use their divisions, uh, the, the Scottish shiltrums, uh, those those masses of, of, of men with their spears pointing outwards. Uh, they use them effectively and use them offensively, uh, unlike uh, William Wallace, who, who largely used such formations defensively, to push the English back onto their own troops uh, and indeed onto the Bannockburn itself. And I think that this that whole situation combined to spread panic in the English forces. And once some of those English troops began to flee, I think the battle was effectively over. Excellent. Uh, and then this next question, which is from uh, Maddie Hodges on Facebook. Um, you've just talked a little bit about that, but um, she says um, that uh, the wars are famed as the start of the longbow. So I think she's just after a bit of information, a bit of context about how important the longbow was uh, and, and kind of where where its origins lay in uh, in this story. So yeah, I think the the English had always had access to large numbers of archers. Uh, although when during the first war, I think it's mostly um, Welsh archers uh, or, or troops from the marches, uh, men who used the bow in their daily lives. Uh, I think things uh, develop uh, in the 1330s, and what you start to then see uh, is, is is indeed the rise of the use of the English longbow as it comes to be uh, better known. Um, and I think it's 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 in that period that you start to see the the, the greater use of, of large numbers of archers uh, to, to potent effect. So at the Battle of uh, Dublin Moor, for example, although not against the English as such, it was against English soldiers. Uh, and the English archers are placed on the flanks of the army so that when the Scots are advancing on the English line, the archers are pouring arrows into the Scottish army, which forces the Scots inwards. They have to turn in to, to try and escape the arrow fire. Uh, and the Scots eventually end up trampling each other to death. Uh, and far more of the Scots died on the day from uh, suffocation uh, than, than from, from actually being killed by the English. And a year later, Edward III himself uses a very similar uh, set of tactics uh, at the Battle of Halliton Hill. Uh, and you see again the Scots being chewed up by English archery fire as before they, they, they're able to get to the English. Uh, and even when they're fighting hand-to-hand -hand with the English, the, the archers are still pouring arrows into the, the Scottish army from the flanks. And it just winnows away at the Scots until eventually they can't take it anymore uh, and they have to flee. Ultimately, I suppose, the, the English longbow becomes best known for the successes of the Hundred Years' War. So the, 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 the Battle of Cressy, for example, in 1346, uh, is perhaps the, the, the greatest example of this. Um, but no, the development of the longbow, I think, was something which was very much a weapon of the English and indeed of a particular class within English society, that of the yeomanry. Uh, they trained often, they built up their technique in firing, uh, firing rapidly and firing as part of a group. Uh, and I think it, it, the, the longbow then soon becomes a very potent we weapon that the Scots and the French have a very hard time combating. And and they do try and do this. So the, the Scots at the Battle of Neville's Cross, for example, in 1346, were said to have lowered their heads when the archers opened fire so that the arrows bounced off their helmets. Um, but the Scots still lost. Um, and over 50 years later, at the Battle of Homelden Hill, uh, the Scots are still being decimated by English archery fire. I think the French have similar issues. Um, they, they fight Poitiers in, a very, in 1356 in a very different fashion to try and counter the English arrows. And indeed, Agincourt uh, in the 15th century is different again. Um, but, but, but French attempts to alter their style of fighting to nullify the English archer still largely end in defeat. And it takes them a long time to, to find a way to, to actually stop that working for the English. Um, now, I was 
told off once by Robert Hardy, who um, uh, was a, a big expert on the longbow, because I said to him, how do you fire a longbow? And he said, you never say that because there's no gunpowder involved. There's no fire. Yes. He said, you shoot a longbow. Uh, and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Robert. Um, but uh, uh, I, I guess that's... Um, I guess that's just uh, that's just semantics and nomenclature, isn't it? But um, uh, but but interesting, very interesting. The longbow, isn't it? Um, okay, so uh, where shall we go to next? Um, how important was the Declaration of Arbroath at the time it was written? Um, wonders, <laughs> wonders, Google. Yeah, and, and I suppose part of the the mythology, maybe, of the Declaration is the extent to which it's become more important after uh, it was written, and indeed in, in, in more modern periods. Uh, I, I suppose the Declaration of Arbroath is arguably an important statement of Scottishness. Uh, I think it emphasises that element of Scottish independence and Scottish separateness from England. It was, we have to remember, part of a wider diplomatic effort which sought support from both the papacy as well as from the King of France uh, and tried to portray the idea of a kingdom unified behind the rulership of, of Robert I and fighting as one against the English. Um, as this statement, I think, should probably make clear, though, it was also a carefully constructed piece of propaganda by Robert I and his government to portray himself as the one and only true and rightful King of Scots. Um, and the declaration is very much used to emphasise to the Scots themselves the idea that Scottish independence and Bruce's kingship are indelibly linked, that in effect you can't have one without the other. And of course this was not necessarily the case, um, but it was part of an attempt to, to make it so and to convince the wider world uh, of the veracity of that statement. I mean, it's all, also a, a religiously inspired document. It's an attempt to get the papacy back on side uh, in what was a kingdom that was under papal interdict uh, as a result of Robert I's actions in killing his rival, John Common, uh, and waging war uh, against England. So it, it is a, it's a complex document, um, and I think the, the mythology of, of it has perhaps grown. That's not to undermine its, its importance. It was uh, and is a very important document, uh, but we have to understand it in the round. We have to understand fully what it was intended to do. So we've got the papacy involved now. So we're getting we're getting a good sense here that this isn't just a clash between England and Scotland. There's lots of other parties involved. Uh, right, there's a lot of people uh, on the internet who want to know what Robert uh, Bruce Robert I died of. Do we know that? Uh, I think the simple answer is no, we don't. Um, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of discussion. Uh, there have been. Uh, very recently, um, you know, there have been efforts to, to reconstruct uh, Bruce's face uh, from the the plaster cast skeleton, uh, plaster cast um, uh, skull, sorry, that, that exists that that was dug up at Dunfermline as, and is presumed to perhaps be uh, from Bruce's body. Um, I mean, I think that, that there are a few possibilities. Um, it certainly appears that he suffered from an illness for quite some time. He succumbed to something during the winter campaigns of, of 1307 to 8, and indeed it's possible that he, he caught something on campaign that then affected him for the rest of his life. Um, his latter months were, were spent in pilgrimage uh, as he saw his own end coming. So th there is that idea of him you know, almost suffering something debilitating over, over a number of years. Uh, the, the main suggestion, of course, is that he died of leprosy, uh, and there are some possibilities in this regard, and recent research by Michael Perman has suggested there are links uh, with uh, Bruce's religious devotions to leprosy or a similar ailment, uh, although we have to also recognise that that accusation of leprosy is one that's brought by mostly English chroniclers, uh, and that the, the negative association of the illness itself may have been part of English propaganda uh, to undermine uh, the Bruce King. Um, Perman even suggests the possibility of, of something uh, sexually transmitted uh, or similar as ultimately being uh, the root cause of, of the illness that caused his death. But ultimately, we don't know, and I'm afraid this is just the case for, for most figures in the Middle Ages. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So the young Edward III in turn overthrew his mother and her lover uh, as regents. And, and in this endeavour, he was assisted by a gr group of men known collectively uh, today as the Disinherited. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Uh, another question. Uh, so getting to the end of the First War of Independence, we have the, the peace treaties. Um, is it true that we don't know exactly what was in the peace treaties of Edinburgh and Northampton that ended the First War? Yeah, so I, I think we have to just... Uh, recognize that the treaties that were negotiated were complex documents and it's not we're not talking about one document there are various indentures involved in it uh, various sub clauses and things which which some of which do appear to have been uh, lost um over the centuries so there is a bit of investigative work to do to try and work out what might be missing uh, some elements i think are better known than others but uh, so we know for example that the scots agreed to pay reparations uh, for the damage done to Northern England as a result of their campaigns over the previous decade or so. Uh, there's obviously the, the marriage agreement uh, of the young David, uh, Prince David uh, to, to Joan of the Tower um, and various elements uh, as well, uh, including the, the possible return of the Stone of Schoon uh, to, to Scotland. Um, but one of, the, one of the ones that has been researched uh, in the last few years um, which may have been lost, is the idea of the return of lands to English nobles, uh, which had been lost as a result of the war. Um, and the fact that some of these lands were being returned to the previous owners in the months and years following the treaty's agreement, uh, and indeed following Robert I's death, does suggest that this was part of the treaty, that it was written into the clauses of the treaty, but which has not uh, survived. Ultimately, though, in, in regards to the, the land question, only the, the simpler cases had really been resolved by the time that war began afresh and made the whole thing rather moot. Right. Now, you have uh, literally written the book on this one, so you should be able to, <laughs> to answer it. Um, so uh, uh, a search engine question, why did the Second War of Independence start? So I think in, in many ways, the Second War starts because of the unresolved issues of the First War. I think we tend to assume that Robert I solved everything uh, and that Scotland was all rosy uh, when he died. Uh, but that really wasn't the case. Uh, many Scots had accepted him as king rather unwillingly, and perhaps more than we recognise, still refused to acknowledge Bruce as king at all. Uh, there had, for example, been a planned rebellion against him in 1320, in the very year that the Declaration of Our Growth was written. 
So these people were were there and they were perhaps waiting their chance uh, and saw it in Robert the First's death and the succession of his his son David uh, as David the uh, Second as as a five year old the perfect opportunity to look for an alternative king. Um, in this case, Edward Balliol, who was son of King John. Uh, there's also the English dimension. The, the treaties of Edinburgh and Northampton that we just discussed uh, had been deeply unpopular in England. Uh, when the attempt was made as stipulated to return the Stone of Scone, there were riots in London and, and it, the, the, the stone never left. Um, the treaties were also signed in the name of Edward III, but by his mother and her lover, who were acting as regents. Uh, but the king himself did not appreciate the peace that was agreed in his name. He also chafed at living under the control of the regents who had unseated his father, uh, Edward II. So the young Edward III, in turn, overthrew his mother and her lover uh, as regents. And, and in this endeavour, he was assisted by a gr- group of men known collectively uh, today as the Disinherited. And these were uh, some Englishmen, some Scots, some Anglo-Scots, who had lost their lands in Scotland as a result of the war uh, and as a result of Robert I's determination that those with lands in Scotland had to be loyal to Scotland and ultimately loyal to him. Uh, Because of the aid of the disinherited then, uh, Edward III owes them his support in their efforts to, to get their lands back. He couldn't do so publicly because of the treaties, uh, but behind the scenes, he encouraged their endeavours. He brings Edward Balliol to England from France uh, to act as their figurehead, and he allows the disinherited to, to recruit soldiers and ships in England as mercenary forces to join them in an invasion uh, which took place in 1332. So this was ultimately the, the, the start of the Second War. Um, but as I said at the start, I think it is a continuation of the Civil War, which had been part and parcel uh, of the First War of Independence, that, that, that battle between Bruce and his Scottish en- enemies, the Commons, the Balliols, those who opposed him. Um, it's just the Second War was then fought predominantly by the remaining veterans of the First War, as well as the successor generation. Right. Okay, you've uh, successfully answered the next question, which was about the disinherited. So let's jump on. And can you... Super again, super quickly sketch out the uh, the, the main um, events of that second war. What, uh, what 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 are the main things we need to know about? Okay, uh, so the disinherited invade uh, by sea in 1332, uh, and they uh, successfully land uh, and, and and defeat a Scottish army, uh, a Bruce Scottish army uh, at Dublin Moor near Perth uh, in that year. Edward Balliol is is inaugurated as King Edward of Scotland. Uh, and he then looked to make his kingship a reality. Uh, he is, though, faced by revolt within Scotland, unsurprisingly. Uh, there are various ambushes to try and catch him, uh, but there is one that's successful at Christmas time, uh, where he's caught off guard at Annan and is effectively chased from the kingdom. Uh, so as a result of this, he he turns to Edward III for help, and he asks for military aid. And again, Edward is, is, is stymied by the, the, the treaty. Um, so Balliol marches north again to besiege Berwick-upon-Tweed. Uh, but as a result of that, the Scots then invade England because they know fine well that Balliol's being being uh, helped by by the English. And that gives Edward III every opportunity he needs then to, to renounce the treaty and to take action himself. Uh, and the uh, Balliol-English forces then defeat the Bruce Scots at Halladon Hill near Berwick in 1333 in the second catastrophic Bruce defeat in in less than a year. Thereafter, Balliol's forces rather solidify their hold and start to administer the kingdom. But just as in previous years, the Scots bounce back again and rebel in 1334. Things do look pretty bleak, however, and David II is sent into exile in France. Uh, But there then follows several years of English disinherited invasions in the summer months and Bruce counteroffensives at other times. English and disinherited castles are besieged and the Bruce Scots start to win back lost ground. They win a smaller-scale uh, battlefield victory at Colblane in Mar in 1335. And as the war becomes more expensive, as Edward III gets increasingly bored with the endeavour, and as war with France is looming over the horizon, the Bruce Scots gain greater uh, success. They even start to take the war to England again uh, by recommencing raids uh, into the north, which start to have an effect. 
David then returns from France in 1341 and takes up leadership of the war himself. But his grand invasion uh, of England in 1346 leads to yet another Scottish battlefield disaster at Neville's Cross. The king is captured, uh, as are many of his nobles, uh, while many others are left dead on the battlefield. And what follows in the years after is much smaller scale warfare, uh, as Balliol, who is by now quite an old man, tries to regain something in Scotland, but with less support from England. Because Edward III ultimately realises that in order to benefit from having David II as as a captive, he actually has to recognise David II as king. And so long negotiations follow until finally David II is released in 1357 uh, and the Treaty of Berwick is agreed that ensures peace for another little while. You're very good, Ian, at condensing uh, complicated stories. So, uh, so thank you for that. That's really uh, that's really helped. Um, right. Uh, next question. Uh, it's slightly loaded, I suppose, in terms of uh, what and when people were independent. But this is from William Rochester on Facebook, who asks, "How did life change for ordinary people after independence?" So, I suppose this this talks of the, the you know the, the everyday people and how they're impacted by these wars. Yeah, and I think. Uh, it's clear that war does have a, a large impact on Scotland itself, that the procession of armies from both sides uh, through much of the kingdom over a number of years does a lot of damage uh, and on a large scale. Um, but I think that that point is important, that, that that damage was actually caused by the English and the Scots. So William Wallace, for example, ordered that crops be burned and animals be driven off as part of a very deliberate Scotch earth policy to try and deny the English supplies. During um, Bruce's campaigns, uh, he raids and ravages Scottish territory that belonged to his Scottish enemies, um, the culmination being the destruction wrought in Buchan that was said to have been remembered more than 50 years after it was committed due to the, the sheer savagery uh, of the campaign. And the actions of the Second War of Independence, I, I've argued, was very much aimed at Scots and Scottish territory, as both sides used violence and destruction to try and force people in the localities to give their allegiance to one side or another. I think it, the second war is very much a war of attrition. It's a war for the people of Scotland itself. Um, but this was not achieved necessarily by winning them over to your side. Um, it's not winning hearts and minds. Uh, it is instead by showing them who was boss, who had the military power, who could rain destruction down upon them and thus who could protect them best in the future. And this this ongoing devastation is then added to by other issues which are affecting you know, Europe and the world in this time. Uh, so climate change in the 14th century brings large-scale famine across Europe and Scotland too suffers from this in the 1310s and 1320s. The Black Death comes to Scotland in 1347, perhaps as a result of raiding Scots returning to Scotland from already infected England. Um, but yet, in spite of all this, Scotland also appears to have had an ability, rather as it does in a military sense, to bounce back from such destruction and suffering. So once government was back in place, the Crown is is, is, is able to start to collect revenue from various regions. It may not have been as much as was expected, and indeed some areas plead poverty for quite some time thereafter as a result of the impact of war, but recovery was possible. Where record evidence exists, it does show some economic revival, even in lands where war had been prevalent. But there still remain some cases where that really wasn't possible, and such lands are recorded as waste, uh, perhaps because people had fled the wartime situation. And I suppose it's just worth remembering that refugees are not just a modern consideration. And the border region in particular saw the displacement of people as the war rumbled on, whether in a large scale or, or through smaller scale uh, skirmishing over a very long period of time. Now, uh, Miss J. Tiratray on Instagram uh, wants to know what was the role of women during the wars of independence. So I suppose that builds on, on the answer you've just given. Yeah, so I mean, I think we have to assume that that, that women uh, suffer from the, the the impact of war, uh, as does everyone else. Our problem is that we have less evidence uh, about women specifically. Uh, those women we we know most about are the noble women uh, who are part of that upper class who do survive more regularly in record and chronicle evidence that that has survived and that's come down to us as historians. So, for example, we have the experience of the Bruce women uh, who were punished uh, for their support of Robert I in the aftermath of his failed rebellion in 1306. 
So his sister Mary and Isabel Countess of Buchan are infamously locked in cages in Roxburgh and Berwick castles. His daughter Marjorie was sent to a convent, uh, while his other sister Christiana and his wife Elizabeth were also imprisoned. And indeed, they were only returned uh, to Scotland uh, over eight years later as part of a, a prisoner exchange uh, involving English captives uh, taken at Bannockburn. In the Second uh, War, we also have a number of noblewomen uh, who were involved in the defence of castles. Uh, so, for example, Agnes, Countess of March, and uh, Christiana Bruce, uh, again, uh, led the defence, uh, respectively, of Dunbar and Kildrummy castles. Um, Chronicle sources do also mention other women, not all noble, uh, who were involved in the war effort at uh, various times. But one of the interesting ones, most interesting ones perhaps, is English record evidence, um, which when administering Scotland records those individuals who lost land, who, who forfeited lands uh, as a result of their support for the Scots. Uh, and in that record evidence, there are actually a number of women uh, who have lost uh, lands and tenements in various southern Scottish um, territories uh, as a result of perceived or actual uh, rebellion against the, uh, the against the English crown. So unfortunately, they, they do tend to be written about less. And even those named individuals discussed uh, here uh, do receive relatively little mention. But but the sources do at least uh, provide that suggestion that, that, that Scottish women were very much involved uh, in the war itself. I suppose, um, thinking about women, if they're... If Margaret, the maid of Norway, had survived, then uh, the whole succession crisis to start with would have uh, been a rather different picture, wouldn't it? Very true. Yes, uh, and would have uh, would have also upset rather, rather a lot of things. Uh, Margaret was due to the negotiations that preceded um, the Great Cause, um, or the the the, the uh, following Alexander the Third's death. Um, Margaret was to be married off to, to Prince Edward, to, to who would become Edward II. So Edward II would have, if the if Margaret had survived and if the marriage had gone ahead, he would have succeeded as King of Scots as well as King of England. And you do then have to wonder if if union between the two kingdoms would have been quite a bit earlier than it, than it eventually ended up being. Okay, a couple more questions. We're almost at the end. Uh, so you mentioned uh, the Treaty of Berwick, thirteen fifty seven. Very quickly, what happened after that, and and what's the what's the broad legacy of this whole conflict? Would you say? Uh, I think that the peace of thirteen fifty seven held for as long as David the Second remained alive. Uh, he was rather more intent on sorting out the question of his own succession and indeed of paying his ransom off um, than causing more confrontation with England. Uh, the succession, though, of the Stuart dynasty with Robert II in 1371 changes matters again, uh, and war with England returns to the Scottish political agenda. Parts of southern Scotland, after all, had remained in English hands since 1347, uh, including the important border towns of Roxburgh and Berwick-upon-Tweed. There was a desire to recover this lost territory, as well, indeed, uh, as lost revenue, because these these towns were associated with important trade, in particular Berwick, which had a a very valuable uh, import and export trade. And with the ongoing state of the Hundred Years' War, Scotland had an opportunity to continue to pursue conflict with England under the cover of helping out their French allies. So war recommences again in the 1370s, although, again, mostly to recover that lost Scottish territory. Things escalate from the 1380s, however, including a period of direct French intervention in those Scottish raids into England. And that continues off and on throughout the 1390s until the Scottish defeat at Hamilton Hill in 1402, uh, which brings things to a close in the short term. Um, But as as already indicated, the Scots went to France to fight the English, and war between the two kingdoms continues sporadically in the 15th and indeed the 16th century. And I think the, the main point here is that for many especially for the Scottish nobility and and in particular for Scottish border lords, fighting against the English had become part and parcel of what they did. (laughs) It was who they were. Uh, And the possibility of envisaging peace with England is almost unthinkable. I think that the war's longevity uh, and the increasing polarisation of both sides, uh, driven by propaganda that continued to develop uh, a kind of them and us idea, made conflict between the two kingdoms almost kind of self-perpetuating. Um, and it's not until much later uh, that you, you really see uh, a rapprochement between England and Scotland. That's not to suggest there aren't attempts to do so. James III of Scotland, for example, is very interested in making peace um, with England. Um, but it's it's opposed quite strongly within Scotland itself. And indeed, the, the, the previously mentioned uh, writing of that epic Blind Harry's Wallace 
occurs just at that time. It's a very deliberate attempt to, to whip up the Scots, to remind them of their history of fighting against the English, and essentially to encourage them not to make peace with the English now. And so there's a question on uh, on Google that is asked a lot, which is, uh, who won the Scottish Wars of Independence? <laughs> I mean, is is there technically a winner? Does anyone does anyone come out of it better off? Um, it, it, it's a difficult one. Um, I mean, I, I suppose it's 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 safe to say the Scots survived the Wars of Independence, uh, and, and perhaps that's the best that can be expected. Um, the Scots don't win necessarily, in as much as they, they very rarely defeat the English in battle. Uh, but then there's something like the Hundred Years' War shows. You know, you can win a lot of the battles, but still lose the war. Uh, and the fact that Scotland comes out of the Wars of Independence, perhaps uh, as a more confident. Um, and and perhaps more unified kingdom uh, does suggest the Scots did gain some benefit um, from that long period of conflict. And as I said at the start, um, you know that conflict between Scotland and England from the 15th century onwards, uh, during none of that period of time does England ever threaten to try and conquer Scotland again. That's very much a 14th century thing. Um, so I think it's... Uh, it's if Scotland didn't win the war, uh, I think they at least survived the war but but to their betterment, I think ultimately the English lose out in terms of just the sheer amount of effort and money that's expended on this conflict from which they gain very little, if any, benefit. Uh, so I suppose in that sense, the English lost out, uh, if not lost. <laughs> okay, right, last one. Uh, and this takes us back to, uh, to my introduction where we talked about Braveheart and we've talked about that film a couple of times through our conversation. Um, how have recent film portrayals of the wars, and Braveheart's not the only one that's, uh, that's covered the topic, shaped public perception of the period, do you think? Yes, I think I think some of the questions provided here do show the lingering influence of Braveheart, which is quite something considering the fact that you know it is now a couple of decades old. Um, and it will be interesting to see if something like Outlaw King, which was the big release last year uh, on Netflix, has a has a similar effect. Um, I mean, I, I personally think it's great to see the medieval period depicted on on screen. I think it does give people an insight into a period that I think people often find it hard to imagine because it seems so long ago, so far removed from our experiences today. Uh, of course, there are problems uh, with those depictions and the reinforcement or indeed creation of false assumptions and stereotypes is something that historians need to work to overcome, if we can. Uh, and and as, as indicated, I think we're still trying to do that in regards to some of the hangovers uh, from Braveheart. Um, I think viewers have to recognise that they are viewing a representation of the past, that it's not real uh, and ultimately cannot be so. But then that's true of history writing as well. And even we historians are not immune to some of these issues. History is ultimately about interpretation of the past and films that depict the Scottish Wars of Independence are similarly interpretations. And I think as long as people recognise that, that's the main thing. And ultimately, anything that gets people interested in this period and in these events can't, I don't think, be a bad thing. And it opens up all sorts of possibilities and interests uh, for the future, uh, which should hopefully drive uh, further investigation of this rather important period. Yeah, I, I just checked Braveheart was uh, 1995, so 25 yeah, years ago as we speak today. In uh, 20, There can't be that many medieval films that have had quite such an impact, I don't suppose, because um, it's... But a lot of people do seem to talk about it and watch it, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I, I was interviewed recently for The Telegraph. They were writing a, a piece about the anniversary of, of Braveheart. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it is odd. It, it's hard to really understand why it's had the longevity it's had. And indeed, why some of those ideas that were presented in, in Braveheart have lasted for as long as they have. You'd have thought at some point they'd better run out of steam that people wouldn't be watching it anymore, but they, they do seem to linger. Um, there's probably a PhD thesis in there somewhere uh, to, to see, just to, to, to investigate that, that theme. Brilliant. Uh, Ian, we've come to the end of my list of questions. Is there, a, before we finish, is there any, uh, any questions or any subjects that you're surprised that our listeners and uh, readers didn't um, want to chat about, want to, want to find out about? Are there any questions that you're regularly asked when you're doing your public outreach or even talking to your students that, uh, that, uh, that cropped up that we haven't talked about here? 
Um, no, I thought that I mean the, the the questions were quite interesting in terms of the scope uh, and the scale of them, and and it was good to see some questions about the, the the second war of independence as well. I think that's that's the one I I champion rather, just because I think so little is known about it. There is that kind of presumption that thirteen twenty eight is the end uh, and that's it, um, and and. and there is that lack of popular knowledge of, of what happens next. So any any opportunity I get to talk about that, uh, the better. No, I, I suppose I expected there to be a, a little bit more in terms of focus on the military side of things, which I which I tend to look at as well. And obviously, there's a question about Bannockburn, but um, but no, just in terms of, of how the wars are fought and and uh, the the nature of that combat and things. I think that that. That, that sometimes does come up, and it's it's you know worth going into that a little bit more. That the idea that the the Scots are um, fighting a war against what they see as as an equal, uh, but during parts of the war, the English are treating the Scots very much as rebels, and it very much alters the dynamic uh, and potentially the way in which it's fought, the the actions of individual soldiers, um, and, and sometimes uh, creating uh, a situation where atrocity. Is far more uh, likely to occur, um, but I suppose my, my argument through it is is that the the Anglo Scottish wars are fought in a in a largely chivalric way, uh, and that the uh, that they're very much like other European wars of the time um, in terms of how Scottish and English soldiers fight. I think it's just interesting to see to actually compare Scottish warriors to the English and see the comparisons and the the, the similarities between them. That just because Scotland is a, a smaller poorer <laughs> kingdom uh, scottish knights scottish warriors are able to 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 behave and fight in a similar way to arm themselves in a similar way and, and actually to to yeah uh, to be contemporary european warriors well dr ian mckinnis uh senior lecturer in history at the university of highlands Ireland. um thank you very much for that very full and instructive tour of the scottish wars of independence and i remind our listeners that your book scotland second war of independence 1332 to 1357 is on sale now published by boydell and will no doubt uh, give a lot more detail about that uh, that second part of the conflict which as you said is perhaps somewhat overlooked so thank you very much for your time thank you that's it for today thanks for listening This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a conversation about California in the 20th century. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.